Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your other host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. So, Paula, I have a very interesting, very tragic case for you today. This was actually one of the only unsolved murders in Carlsbad, California for many years. This is the case of Jody Sarin. In 2007, Jodine Sarin was a 39-year-old woman who lived alone in a ground-level condominium on the 1900 block of Swallow Lane in Carlsbad, California. Now, this was an upscale condo unit, and it was actually owned by Jody's parents with somewhat affluent people living in it. Jodine, who was known to her family as Jody, so that's what I'm going to call her from here on out, she had some mental disabilities. Now she was very high functioning and like I said, she did live alone and had been living alone for 15 years. She was very independent, although she did not work, but despite being able to take care of herself, there were some things that Jody relied on her parents, Art and Lois Saren for. And one of these things that Jody didn't do for herself was driving. So Art and Lois lived nearby and they would take her here or there, wherever she needed to be, and they would check in on her often. Now, Jody stayed very active. She was part of the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. She was part of the Mariposa Club, and she was a member of the Friends Clubhouse. Jody also volunteered at her church and at the San Diego Humane Society. She loved to stay busy and social. She was described as having a gentle heart who loved helping others. According to the DNA ID podcast, Jody's parents would sometimes drop by Jody's house and find Jody had allowed a homeless person to take a shower in her home or see Jody feeding someone who was hungry. So she really went out of her way to help other people. Yeah, very caring and compassionate. Very compassionate, yes. She was. But sometimes, maybe to the point of possibly putting yourself in danger. Yeah. You know, to let someone you don't know in your home could be potentially dangerous. Jodi loved animals, especially her cat and her white horse. And Jodi was also really good at designing floral arrangements and she had a certificate of floral arranging, which I'm totally jealous of. Me too. I've always wanted to do that. Me too. And I'm just not good at it. Me neither. (laughs) I've literally killed a succulent. (laughs) True story. I'm not that bad, but... (laughs) Jody also enjoyed biking, kayaking, and walking on the beach, and she was really close with her family, and like I said, they would see each other often, and her parents would take her to many of her appointments and social gatherings. Well, on Valentine's Day, 2007, Art and Lois celebrated by going to a romantic dinner, and then they went and saw a movie. Now, we know that mother's intuition is a real thing. There's just this connection, and moms often know when something isn't quite right. And Lois, even though she was having a great time on this Valentine's date with her husband, she just had this feeling that something was off. Now, neither Lois nor Art had heard from Jody since the night before, and that was a little unusual. The three had a habit of talking to each other almost every day. So Lois wanted to swing by Jody's condo after the movie to just make sure everything was okay. At around 10 p.m., Lois and Art knock on Jody's front door, but there was no answer. 
So they used their spare key to unlock the door, but the door was actually chain bolted from the inside, so they could only open it a few inches. Since they were able to open the door a crack, they were able to see that all of the lights were on inside the condo. They started calling for Jody, trying to get her to come open the door for them, but there was no response. And at first they thought, well, maybe she's in bed, but the lights were on and that would be strange. So next they thought maybe she was in the bathroom, maybe she was taking a shower. But after a few more minutes of knocking and calling for their daughter and still receiving no answer, Art decided he'd had enough. So he bust open the door. He broke that chain lock and finally, Art and Lois were in their daughter's home. They didn't see anybody in the kitchen, they didn't see anybody in the living room, so they decided to go to Jody's bedroom. And when they pushed open the door, they saw their daughter lying naked in her canopy bed with a partially nude man on top of her. So now, of course, they are just mortified. They assume they just walked in on their daughter having an intimate moment. But at the same time as you can imagine, Art, as a protective father, was a little concerned that perhaps this man might be taking advantage of his daughter. So as they rush out of the bedroom doorway, Art tells this man to get dressed and get out. And then Art and Lois go into another living area of the condo to allow Jody and this mystery man time to get dressed. Now I can imagine as they waited, they were probably whispering to each other about how embarrassing this situation was, or maybe about how their night took a strange turn. I would imagine that any romantic feelings they may have been having earlier in the night have probably dissipated by now. Definitely. But as they waited, they realized no one was coming out of that bedroom. And that seemed strange. They kept waiting for this obviously embarrassed couple to come out and have some kind of an awkward conversation with them. But it was just taking too long. There was still no movement coming from that bedroom. So Art went back and knocked on the bedroom door and there was no reply. So he slowly pushed it open. Now this time as Art entered his daughter's bedroom, he could see that the man was gone, but Jody was lying on her bed completely motionless. And at this point he could tell that something was very wrong. Jody's face was bloody and misshapen and Jody was cold and unresponsive. Art grabbed Jody and put her on the floor and began CPR. But unfortunately, Jody could not be saved. An autopsy would later reveal that she had been bludgeoned and strangled to death. And by the time her parents had found her, Jody had been dead for an estimated 10 to 12 hours. Instead of interrupting an intimate moment between their daughter and her lover, Art and Lois had walked in on their daughter's killer having sex with her corpse. Oh my God. Can you imagine? No. Just heart-crushing thought. Now, investigators were able to determine that after Art and Lois walked in on their daughter's killer, they waited in an area of the condo where they couldn't see the bedroom door or the front door. So while her parents were standing in Jody's home, waiting for her to come out of the bedroom with this guy, her killer got up and walked right out of the condo using the front door. And her parents never saw a thing. That's insane. Can you imagine how awful you would feel knowing that the man who murdered your daughter just 
like walked out you were right there you saw him and he just walked out no i cannot imagine oh my gosh just this the details of this case are just so upsetting to me these poor parents jody's condo was immediately ruled a crime scene and of course an investigation began and strangely investigators were not able to find any signs of forced entry almost all of the windows were intact and closed and the door didn't appear to have been tampered with. So it almost appeared that Jody had just let her attacker in through the front door. However, given the violent circumstances of her death, investigators didn't want to rule out the possibility of a forced entry attack. Another thing that pointed to Jody possibly letting her attacker in her home was the fact that there was a pair of men's sneakers by the front door. And Jody always asked her guests to remove their shoes before they entered her home. Now, investigators tested these shoes, and they tried to hunt down whoever may have owned them, but they learned that they were probably purchased secondhand at a local thrift shop that often catered to homeless people. There were also two cups and saucers in Jody's sink, again appearing that she had perhaps had a guest over and they had drank tea together. There were no signs of robbery. Nothing seemed to be missing. So robbery didn't appear to be the motive, which makes sense to me just because jumping from robbery to necrophilia seems like quite the leap. Yeah. And starting with tea. Right, right. (laughs) Speaking of necrophilia, there's a little trigger warning. This part's pretty disturbing. So investigators were able to determine that Jody had been moved all around her condo presumably after her death. Oh my gosh. And they could tell this because there was blood all over the apartment, but it appeared to be post-mortem blood. It wasn't like actively bleeding. It would have just been residual from her body being moved around. Investigators did find a full-length mirror that had been positioned in the bedroom to allow Jody's killer to better see himself raping her deceased body. This just gets worse and worse. It really does. And part of the mirror stand had been broken off and was believed to have been used to assault Jody, before then being used to prop her body up, again allowing her killer a better view of what he was doing in this mirror. So sick. In addition to the wounds that ultimately caused her death, Jody had bruising and other defensive wounds on her arms and skin under her fingernails. She had fought her attacker. Good for her. Absolutely. Unknown seminal DNA was found, but there were no matches when it was ran through the state database. And this DNA matched the DNA found on the sneakers. There was also a sweatshirt that was found that I'm going to tell you about in a little bit. The DNA also matched the skin under Jody's nails. Carlsbad Police Lieutenant Kelly Kane said of the DNA that, quote, it's evidence sufficient to identify someone if we get a match, end quote. So, They had enough to catch this guy, whoever it was, if only they had something to compare this DNA to. Right. Now, given the fact that there was no forced entry, police believe Jody likely knew her killer, and Art later told the police that he had thought he'd recognized that man as someone that Jody knew through her circle of disabled friends. And in one source, I saw that it may have even been someone that she had dated. He said that this particular man didn't have a car and used public transit or a bicycle to get around. So he gave the police this guy's name and they tracked him down. And this was a friend of Jody's. 
and he willingly gave a DNA sample and it did not match. He was ruled out. Now, one of Jody's neighbors reported seeing a man running down an embankment near her apartment on the same night that Jody was murdered. But because he was running so quickly, she wasn't able to get like a clear view of his face. And it was also dark outside. Now, at the time, she thought this was strange, but she only realized how important it was when she saw a helicopter circling overhead and then later found out about Jody's murder. And the strangest part of the scene was the man was wearing no shoes. Now, search dogs were brought in to try to track the man's path, but nothing was found except for a sweatshirt that was also believed to have been purchased secondhand. And remember, I mentioned there was a sweatshirt that was found that matched the DNA found at the crime scene. This was that sweatshirt. Ten years went by with very few suspects and nothing that really led anywhere. But in 2017, Parabon Nanolabs was able to transform genetic material found at the crime scene into a digital image of the suspect. Now, this process predicts the suspect's skin, eye, and hair color. It predicts their gender, their ancestry, and their face shape. Now, true crime followers will have heard of this process and know it as phenotyping. Ellen Graytalk, the director of bioinformatics at Parabon, said that these genetic findings can provide police with a suspect description, helpful to prioritize their suspect list, as well as to potentially exclude people saying, quote, it takes an investigation that seems infeasible and gives you a place to start, end quote. I love science. It's amazing that they can do this kind of stuff. Right? Isn't this so interesting? Yes, and I really wish I could go back in time and study so I can get a job in that field. It's not too late. Uh, I feel like it is. It's never too late. I'm too old. <laughs> Lesson of the day, it's never too late, ever. You should absolutely do it. And wouldn't you love to have this done, like, on you personally? Yes. And see how accurate it was? Absolutely. Like, I know that I took on most of the more passive traits from both of my parents. My mom has dark skin, dark eyes, dark hair. That's normally dominant. My dad has fair skin, light eyes, light hair, and here I am, light hair, hazel eyes, light light, yeah. So I would love to find out what this would have predicted for me. But right now I can see like a nice healthy tan on you. So you are able to tan. I am able to, but just naturally I'm very, very fair. Sadly. (laughs) (laughs) I would have loved my mom's tan, (laughs) to be honest. Well, according to this test, Jody's killer predicted the suspect has fair to light skin, green or blue eyes, blonde or brown hair, and some freckles. He's likely in his 30s to 40s and of Northern European descent. Now this profile was compared to what Art and Lois remembered about the killer, and they described the man as heavy set with a large stomach and disheveled hair. And they thought he was probably about five feet, eight inches to maybe six feet tall. And we'll post a photo of the Paraben Nano Labs composite of the suspect in Jodine's murder to our social media. After her death, there was a $52,000 reward for information that could lead to the apprehension and conviction of Jody Saren's killer. And Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger actually offered 50000 of those dollars. Wow, that's awesome. Isn't it? And Crime Stoppers offered the remaining 2000 
Awesome. Yes, absolutely. And anybody with any information was urged to call Crime Stoppers. But any tips or information that came in, it didn't really lead anywhere. And Jody's case was, like I said earlier, the only unsolved murder in Carlsbad for many years. Now, for the next several years, Art and Lois really rallied for their daughter. They raised money for charities to help other families of murder victims, and they publicly supported legislation that would include a requirement that anyone arrested for, not just convicted of, but arrested for a felony, would have to submit a DNA sample to CODIS. What's your thoughts on that? You know, honestly, I'm kind of conflicted because I understand when you're in the middle of an investigation, it's really helpful, really important. Mm -hmm. But if someone comes in for something minor, it kind of feels like it's invasive. Well, it's for people who have been arrested for felonies. Oh, okay. Specifically felonies. Felonies. So felonies, you know, aren't minor. At the same time, though, it's arrested for, not convicted of. So they could potentially be innocent arrested for a felony and have to provide DNA. It, I mean, it is invasive, but personally, I kind of think I'm all for it. But I'm also one of those people who's like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, why are you hiding? That too. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. I would be wary to give my DNA just because I don't trust anybody. <laughs> right. I'm the same way. Um, that's why I've never done one of those genealogy things, but both of my parents have, so I'd be, I'd be screwed anyway. <laughs> but I also don't have anything to hide. So unless I go out and murder someone, what what do I have to worry about? This legislation actually passed, and California is now one of the states that gathers DNA in these cases. Right. So they they were successful in, in getting this passed. Good for them. Absolutely. Now, as we know, our DNA technology has come a long way, and it continues to advance, and it's really scary to me to imagine what we will one day be capable of doing with this DNA. Oh, absolutely. Like, they say they'll be at some point able to walk into a room and, like, perform a test and say, like, Abraham Lincoln stood in this room X many years ago. That's incredible. That's how powerful they expect that it will one day be. That's pretty scary. Yes, it is. Well, in this case, we're really thankful for the advancing DNA technology because in November 2018, a man named David Mabrito was identified as a suspect in the rape and murder of Jody. Now, just to show you how brilliant these people are who have figured out this potential suspect, Mabrito was actually adopted. He was an adopted name. So during all of their genealogical searches, that name wasn't coming up. Instead, they kept coming back to the surname Merkel. And it was only through all of this legwork and process of elimination were they ever able to boil it down to this man, David Mabrito. And I just think that's so fascinating. And it must really feel rewarding. But it, I can also imagine it would be really frustrating sometimes. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, if you're like following the science and you keep coming up with the result, but then there's no match. Like, we know it's this line of people. We know this is who it is, but they don't have a 30 to 40 year old man in that family that matches this but yet this science is telling it like that would be really frustrating definitely you know just to be so close and keep getting dead ends but then finally someone found a link to the adoption and it finally made sense and i just i just think that's so cool david mabrito was a transient who had family in the area of carlsbad california and he was 38 years old at the time that Jody was killed. And he totally fit the profile of this killer. 
But to make things a little trickier, David Mabrito had also been put up for adoption and he never knew that he had a biological brother who could also be the killer. And then to make things even harder for these scientists, both men were deceased at the point that their names came up in this search. Oh, frustrating. Absolutely. All of this occurred because DNA evidence that was left at the murder scene was, again, ran through a DNA database. And though Marbrito's own DNA was not in the system, DNA from some of his relatives was. And scientists were able to zero in on Mabrito and his brother using the process of elimination. This method is forensic genealogy, and genealogists used open source DNA databases to look at family trees for potential matches. And so far, this method has most famously helped to identify the Golden State Killer, who, as we know, was an active serial killer since the 1970s. Yes, that was amazing when they did that. And this is how they did it. I know, it's incredible. So cool. So police at this point had indications that Mabrito was their man, but to be sure, they approached his ex-wife, who had divorced Mabrito only the year before, and their 18-year-old son, Dylan. They both agreed to share their DNA, and police were able to make the match. So interestingly, the Oceanside Police Department in California had an unprocessed sample of Mabrito's DNA that had been gathered at a traffic stop because Mabrito had actually matched the description of a suspect in another case. And Marissa, Mabrito's ex-wife, shared that just a week or so after this sample was taken, David came home full of anxiety about the fact that he had just been involved in a traffic stop and had been asked for his DNA and had provided it, and he killed himself a week later. Wow. Which also was only two weeks before the four-year anniversary of Jody's death. Okay. Now, because Mabrito died shortly after the sample was taken, it was never processed, but the police department also never discarded it. So, good job, police. Yes. So now, after Jody's death, and once, you know, everything's pointing to Mabrito possibly being their guy, someone realizes they have an unprocessed sample of his DNA, and they run it against the crime scene DNA, and the matching technology returned a 1 in 64 quintillion match. Wow. Now, to me, that sounds like a made-up number. It does. (laughs) But it's actually a number with 18 zeros in it. And in plain old English, this means there is virtually no statistical probability that it could be anyone else's DNA but David Marbrito's. Investigators cannot be sure, but they don't believe that Jody really knew David. But the exact nature of their relationship and how they came to cross paths with each other may forever be a mystery, as they are both now deceased. Even after 11 years, there is still no known motive for Jody's murder. Although, side note, my opinion is sexual violence. That sounds about right, yeah. To me, that seems like the the motive and some of the medications and things that we'll later find out that David was on can amp up that sexual drive. Yeah. So, Jody did not abuse drugs in any way. But the facility where she received mental health treatment also treated people with addiction. And David did suffer from meth addiction. So it was possible that they met at that facility. And given the fact that Jody was so trusting and always wanted to help people, investigators think it's possible that he took advantage of her in that situation. And that's how he 
found himself in her apartment. Yeah, that sounds very likely. Right. So I looked up David Mabrito online and I read his online obituary and pretty much anything I could find on him. And it is just so scary, Paula, how someone can look and seem so normal and be capable of such evil things. Like he, if you look up his obituary and remember, there was no link to him being the murderer for years after his death. So at the time that he died of suicide, you know, there's all these loving comments being made and right. and nobody knew that he had done this and it seemed like he was really loved and cared for and was going to be greatly missed that is just so crazy to me now he was uh by trade a tile setter he was a surfer he was also a meth addict so he's multi-talented right i also wanted to compare like his photo to the parabon composite and he does look similar i wouldn't look at the composite and say oh that's david but he does have like the same coloring and the same features as they said he might so i just found that interesting now when marissa uh found out that her ex-husband had murdered jody she said she had a hard time wrapping her head around it but she also said that for three months she had to turn off her phone because when her ex-husband was publicly named the killer she was attacked online called a monster and treated as if she had known about or had been involved in the killing when all along she had no idea that's horrible right and it was only after that she was able to look back and be like wait a minute and that's when she remembered him coming home he he didn't actually live with her but because he didn't have a permanent address she would let him stay with her sometimes and he came home and was freaked out about having given that dna and then killed himself a week later he did have a history of criminal activity but there were no felonies and nothing that would be too much cause for concern he had no history of violence so even if that legislation had been in place at the time he would not have had to have ever submitted his DNA. So that would not have changed the outcome of this case. His DNA would not have been on file because he had never been arrested for any felonies. Marissa did say that she put some blame on herself when David committed suicide. She said that after he'd come home that day, so upset about the DNA test, she and Dylan went out of town for a bit and allowed him to stay at her home while they were gone. And when she returned, he was dead of an intentional overdose. After an 11-year investigation, Carlsbad Police Chief Neil Gallucci said in a press release, quote, We are thankful to provide a resolution of this case to Jodine's family. We never forgot Jodine, and we are grateful to have identified the person responsible for her tragic murder, end quote. Jody's family released the following statement, quote, Jody taught us all with her special challenges, perseverance and love of nature. There was joy in her laughter, love in her heart, and faith in her soul. The Saren family is forever grateful to the Carlsbad Police Department for their outstanding efforts in attaining justice through resolution of this tragic case. End quote. Wow. That's a, that's a rough one. That is. That's heavy. So, but I'm so thankful that in this case, they have been able to identify her murderer. Uh, it's sad to me that he was never held accountable. I guess he was held accountable ultimately. In whatever happens after after life you know he had to face judgment after that but as far as here on earth you know he was never held accountable his parent or jody's parents never got to like look him in the face and ask him questions and say why so there's a lot of unanswered questions but at least they know who right so i would uh, imagine that brings some some closure but i would hope so it's really nice to see when parents or family members 
after some kind of tragedy, they use that motivation to help others in the same situation. Absolutely. It's very admirable. Right. Yeah, they became complete advocates. Yes. Helping all these other people and really wanting to make a change. Yes, I agree. That That's just like the ultimate... Right. We couldn't help our daughter, but we're going to help everybody else's. Right. That's that's a beautiful thing. And I don't know if that would be, I've never thought about being in that position and God, please never let me be. But like, you know, I imagine that would take a certain kind of personality because I would think sometimes continuing to surround yourself with other people who've been in that situation might like keep some of the pain fresh because you're yeah, reminded. Yeah, sure it's difficult. I'm sure it's helpful as far as support goes also to know that you're not alone. But at the same time, I can imagine that it would bring up some pain to see other people's pain. And I don't know. It just, they're strong people. They're good people. Yes, they are. So that's the case of Jodine Saren. It's a really sad one. Yes. But again, glad we have some answers. Definitely. Yay, science. Yes, I know. It's amazing. It really is. I love science. It's really going to be cool to see what we can do as, as time goes by. And think of all the unsolved cases that will end up getting solved. Oh, yeah. Because I know people keep, now that we have this technology, go back to the 70s or the 80s and like, all right, now we have this technology. What can we do to hopefully close it? Right? I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of unsolved, unsolved cases. And that's amazing. Yes, it is. Very, very cool. Well, do you have anything for us for the Time to Kill segment? Hmm, Perhaps I do. Ooh. Send some shivers down my spine. So I was going through some old Florida history, and I found a few haunted places. <laughs> so the first one was the Miami Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables, and it was built in 1926 by the founder of Coral Gables, George Merrick. At that time, it was the tallest building in Florida, standing 315 feet tall. It wasn't just a hotel. It also hosted golf tournaments, glamorous fashion shows, galas, and even water shows in, at that time, what was the largest pool in the world. Unlike most hotels, the Biltmore had a 13th floor, and this is where a gangster named Thomas Walsh, also known as Fatty Walsh, was killed by gunshot by another gangster. This is when the ghost stories began. A woman called the front desk in the middle of the night to complain about a band playing loudly in the room below. The woman at the front desk said there was no one checked into that room. Another guest said she was lying on her bed and felt someone push her pillow down. That's just the creepiest thing to me. So creepy. Yes. The Don Caesar Hotel. In 1925, a young Thomas Rowe was studying in England and one night met a beautiful Spanish opera singer named Lucinda. She was performing in the opera. They quickly fell in love. They called each other Marionetta and Don Caesar during secret meetings at a famous fountain. Sadly, Lucinda's family disapproved of their relationship and quickly moved her back to Spain. Thomas went back to America, trying over the years to contact his true love. His letters kept returning to him unanswered. The only piece of mail he received was a newspaper clipping of her death and a note that simply said, To my beloved Don Caesar. Heartbroken, he spent three years building a house that was a tribute to Lucinda. The courtyard was an exact replica of the fountain they would rendezvous in London. After he died, his staff reported seeing a gentleman wearing a white suit and a Panama hat wandering the grounds. Housekeepers would hear knocking on doors, but would open them to find no one. 
servers carrying trays would see the door swing open for them. Some have seen a young couple walking on the beach, the man in a white suit, and the woman in a Spanish-style peasant dress. Perhaps it's possible that the two reunited to spend eternity together. Oh, I hope so. I do too. I love that story. Ashley's Restaurant in Rockledge, Florida, opened in 1933. It was originally called Jack's Tavern. A year after opening, the body of a 19-year-old girl was found by the Indian River. She was brutally murdered, and exactly what happened is still unknown. She was a regular at Jack's Tavern, and that just happened to be the last place she was seen alive. People say her murder must be the cause of all of the strange happenings that still happen today. A lot of activity is in the woman's bathroom. A manager said she saw a woman's feet in the stall next to her in what looked like 1930s-style shoes. When she exited her stall, she noticed the one next to her was empty. Others have seen a young woman in the mirror of the bathroom. Others have had the feeling of being tapped or pushed on the stairs. Lights have flickered on and off by themselves. Dishes will fall and break with no one close by. Employees said that they can hear whispers after hours when the restaurant is closed. The next morning, objects will have been moved. Photographers, psychics, and ghost hunters have all visited and have their own different theories. But one thing they all agree on is that Ashley's restaurant is a highly charged place. Wow. And those are my random ghost stories. That's very cool. Have you ever been to the St. Augustine Lighthouse? I have. I've only made it halfway up and then I went the rest of the way down because I'm afraid of heights and the stairs going up and up and up. I was getting really dizzy. So I had to stop and then just go back down. Last time uh, for, our, for my husband and my anniversary, we went to St. Augustine. And I am claustrophobic and afraid of heights and just don't like stairs in general. Right. Not a good combo. No. Because this, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the St. Augustine Lighthouse, you need to look it up. But it is a spiral staircase in an enclosed space. But the stairs are like, you know how they're solid staircases where like, like you cannot see through the stairs. Right. But these you can. You can actually like see, you have a step and then you have another space, ste- space and a step. Right. But on top of that, the steps themselves are like a mesh, like an open iron mesh. Right. It's not a solid piece of Right. Iron. So you can like see through the space between the stairs and literally through the stair itself all the way up. And it's just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I did not think I'd be able to go up it but I did I just because there is fortunately after every floor there's like a landing and if it weren't for those landings I wouldn't have been able to do it but I I stopped at each landing but my point is this is one of the most haunted places in all of Florida ghost hunters I want to say did a couple of episodes there they came back because they got so much stuff they do ghost tours at night with all the machines and and stuff you can now I can't imagine climbing up there at night and like spending the night in the lighthouse but that's legitimately what they do yeah no thanks not would you want to you wouldn't want to do it with no me? just because I couldn't make it in the daytime <laughs> when there's other people well there's still other not, people on not the tour haunted or scary yes I, I couldn't do it yeah, the, because of the heights, though. Because of that. The, and the fact that those spiral staircases, it was making me dizzy. Yeah. And I would stop on the landings like you, but I just, I couldn't. Yeah. It, it was hard. Yeah. It, it was, was making so my anxiety shoot through the roof. Right. Yeah, no, I get it. But that's a, maybe you could tell us the story of St. Augustine Lighthouse sometime. Yes, And definitely. why it's so haunted. Because yes. I'm not sure why, but I know there's lots of stories. Oh, yeah. 
and St. Augustine is one of the most haunted places yes. in America. So I'm definitely going to do a St. Augustine episode. Oh, yes. There's a lot of good ones. When you do, I have a story. I have okay. a story, but I'll, I'll save it. Okay, cool. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for listening to us. We really appreciate it. If you think about it, do us a favor. Go to wherever you like to listen to your podcast and leave us a comment and leave us a rating. It really helps uh, to get our show to show up when people search for true crime podcasts. So that would be great. We really appreciate it. If you have any cases you want us to cover, give us a, send us an email at dollsanddoom at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. All right. We look forward to bringing you a new episode every Friday. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.